Hello, and welcome to the Fascinating Foodies podcast. Before we start, I've got a little apology and a little request. First of all, a little apology that the sound quality on this episode isn't quite as polished as I would like it to be in parts. Secondly, if you are enjoying these podcasts, please do subscribe and rate them on Spotify and please share them with others that you think might find them interesting too. This episode is all about regenerative agriculture. I've been wanting to talk about this for quite some time and I was lucky enough to be connected with Emily Norton. Emily is a farmer and an independent rural policy and strategy advisor with a real interest in emerging natural capital influences on land, food and farming. She's a qualified solicitor and has a master's in sustainable agriculture. Emily has spent her career working in farming, food and rural affairs, most recently as Head of Rural Research at property consultancy Savills. Emily holds various board positions, including Chair of the Advisory Group for Soil Association Exchange and is a member of the Environmental Markets Board. She's a member of the National Policy Committee of the CLA and is a trustee at the Royal Norfolk Agricultural Association. Emily lives and farms in Norfolk, and I think you'll agree that she's very well placed to speak about this subject. She's very passionate. She is very articulate and makes this, what could be quite a complicated subject, uh, really digestible, and um, hopefully you'll think it's engaging. I think it's very engaging. Um, So if you want to learn a bit more about regenerative agriculture, then sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Hi, Emily, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. And I'm really grateful for you making the time to talk about this topic. It's something, as we've spoken about, that I'm really keen to, to learn more about. And I think that the listeners of the podcast will be really keen to learn more about it too. Well, it um, is a super trendy subject, regenerative agriculture, Rachel. So um, I am very happy to be here and try and debunk some myths and explain a little bit about what's going on. Brilliant. That sounds excellent. So if we may, can we start with a little bit more about you and how you became involved with farming? Sure. Well, I was fortunate enough to be born into it, uh, which is one of the more established ways to become involved in the industry much less rare to sort of arrive into agriculture as a new entrant although regenerative agriculture is one of the key reasons why more and more people from a non-traditional non-farming background are getting interested in the sector so I was born into a farm in Norfolk family business my grandfather founded back in 1947 and been fascinated by farming and everything about it ever since Brilliant. So it sounds like you are very well placed to be uh, commenting on this subject. I think what would be really helpful is if we just start by simply, if I can just ask you the question, what is regenerative agriculture? Because as you say, it's a very trendy topic and I'm hearing these words used more and more in the food industry. But I, uh, I certainly really didn't understand when I first heard them what they meant and I feel like I'm only scratching the surface now but what does it mean? 
so the lack of understanding about what regenerative agriculture actually is is one of the the key challenges that, that it faces at the moment so a little bit of background and context to what's going on there's some really kind of big picture things that are changing within farming mostly as a result of our decision to leave the european union which means we've been innovating an entirely new uh, system of agricultural support as we transitioned from something where farmers were basically paid a form of income support in order to protect their ability to farm, regardless of what the weather was doing to them. So it could be a good harvest or a bad harvest. You've got that income support each year in order to kind of uh, guarantee that you could afford to keep going and keep food being produced. So that against this background of kind of this concentration of supermarket power over the last 40 years and those kind of free market dynamics, it's basically meant that farmers have become excessively dependent upon uh, income support and have been, um, you, you could argue, this kind of extractive mentality. It's all been about yield, produce as much food as possible from the land in order to keep food cheap. That's what the entire supermarket system has been encouraged to do. It's all about the cost of food to the consumer and that, that real kind of search for value. And that's created this sort of very linear approach to farming. So very much kind of above the soil it's about planting the seed putting inputs chemicals fertilizers on it and and seeing how much of a crop you can grow to maximize your income that's kind of created a very negative cycle for farming where the kind of the chemicals that have been available to us are declining they're becoming less effective we've got much greater awareness of the environmental impact of all of this dependency upon these inputs and so there was this little bit of kind of understanding that we really desperately needed to invest in the environment than just in sort of this income support system. And so as we have moved away from the common agricultural policy, which was the EU's approach, we've innovated this entire kind of system in environmental investment. So that was one thing that's going on, this shift from area-based payments, this income support for farmers, through environmental land management uh, and payments to farmers to deliver for the environment. Against this background, you've also got a shift in the way that corporates are being held accountable for their overall environmental impact. And that's through things like the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, and also now the new one on very similar Task Force on Nature-Based Financial Disclosures, and these are requiring these very big businesses like the listed PLCs uh, that we see within our food supply chain to think about the, the climate impact that they have when they source products, when they source inputs into their retail outlets in, in order to sell on to consumers. So now that they're having to disclose this information, they need to understand which farms it's coming from, which environmental practices those farms are doing, what the overall carbon balance of these farms are doing. And so we've got this sort of fairly rapid shift from a system of farming, which has just been about kind of yield and profit and the income support coming into farming to something which is entirely focused on environmentalism uh, and kind of understanding the overall kind of impact that you're having while still having to maintain profitable farming and food producing businesses within that space. And I think the third dynamic that has happened here has really been kind of a counterswell of awareness within the farming industry itself around this sort of like slow decline that there's been in this 
kind of extractive model of farming that is that farmers really want to engage with a different system. So farmers are very open and I think up for this new challenge. Well, a lot of farmers are very open and up for this new challenge in this shift to environmentalism. And we can see these movements in things like Groundswell, which is an incredibly popular farming. It's almost like a festival that happens in the summer where a lot of different regenerative practitioners from across the industry kind of come together and are really kind of joyful and upbeat about this new system of regenerative farming. Now, all of that is a long explanation about what's going on, but doesn't really answer the question of what regenerative agriculture actually is. So what industry is trying to do is to piece together some kind of core principles around which supply chains can be confident that they're sourcing from environmentally responsible farms, around which farms themselves can design systems that are uh, meet their needs and are joyful and good places to work and engaging local communities. And all of this really comes back down to soil and soil health being the most important thing uh, in, in defining all of this kind of new supply chain farmer policy environment to kind of bring it all together. How do we, uh, well, first of all, thank you for that amazing explanation, Emily. So if soil health is the key focus, if this is what everything comes back to, how do we actually measure that? So very, very good question. Again, it's a particular quirk European Union thinking that we haven't had effective soil health policies that have come out of the European Union system. Fundamentally, uh, the member states of the European Union consider the soil to be territorial. Unlike water, which flows from country to country through rivers, there's a lot of policy in the European Union around water quality. There's not similar policies around soil health because it's deemed to be a territorial issue for the member states themselves to kind of define. So without that kind of top level poking, there's been relatively little focus on soil health at territorial level. So back in about 2009, there was a bit of a regulatory push to start thinking about soil health and defining what it means, but it really didn't get very far. And actually, one of the main problems that we then immediately step into is about sort of trying to work out what the perfect answer on soil health is versus working out what the pragmatic answer on soil health is. And so a scientist would give you a suite of 18 different indicators of what good soil looks like and, and the different things that you would measure in order to understand soil health. But, you know, the average farmer can't take 18 different sort of assessments from multiple different sample points within a field. And if you imagine a field, you know, the, the soil type might vary across the field. You might have a slope within the field and different soil at the top and different soil at the bottom. So you know, how are you creating a sampling methodology that allows you to kind of take these accurate things? So anyway, it all gets too expensive, too complicated, too quickly. And how are you then using that information? So fundamentally, there are some really pragmatic things that you can do to assess soil health. One of those is to do a basic thing like a worm count. So you just dig a pit in a field and count how many worms are there. That's a really good kind of simple indicator of how healthy the soil is. And you can also do some laboratory tests for things like soil organic matter, which will give you an indication of the amount of carbon that is being stored. And this link between 
soil health and carbon is one of the reasons why corporates are so interested in pushing for regenerative agriculture because if we can store more carbon within these systems in theory that carbon can be sold as as a, either as an offset or as an inset but the farmer can sell that carbon and make more money wow that's a that's a bit of a a brain twister how how do you sell carbon that's captured in soil so what you need is a baseline. So you measure your soil organic carbon on day one in what methodology you require. So enough samples from the field to know that you've got a representative sample of what's going on there. And then you need to change something. So you need to change something about the management of that field. So it goes from, for example, being in convention, ar conventional arable production to into a regenerative grazing system where you've got livestock who are moving around the field and they're chewing the grass and they're sort of moving the soil with their hooves but not overgrazing it you know and you keep moving them around and this sort of stimulates soil health and then at the end of a period of time probably one year or three years you measure the soil organic matter again and you can work out how much additional carbon has been stored within that system and in theory the difference between day one and year three or whatever your interval is is the amount of carbon that you have sequestered within the soil which in theory can be monetized within a soil carbon code system. Okay, so when we spoke initially, yeah. one of the things that you said to me that really stayed with me about regenerative farming is you said that it's a movement which maximizes the health of the ecosystem of the farm in order to maximize efficiency. Hopefully I haven't misquoted you there. It, it, it sounds very sensible. So hopefully I said that. I will, I will claim credit for it. <laughs> you did. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> so it, it's, this, it's this different way of thinking. So it's really complex because if you think about things in a linear fashion, it's always really straightforward. You create, you know, you grow something, you make it into something, you sell something, it gets eaten, packaging gets thrown away and recycled and everyone's kind of you know you can just it's a process and we think all the time particularly within food manufacturing about that process and it's linear but within this kind of regenerative thinking you, you're trying to think about how healthy you can make the ecosystem from the soil the biodiversity the people the water everything within the system if it's as healthy as possible it's going to produce better quality products and it's going to require a much lower level of artificial inputs in order to keep the system going and in order to be productive. And so you sort of you create this kind of circularity at farm level of moving crops around, moving livestock around, growing a, a, a very large diversity of different crop types and uh, sometimes different crops within the same field more permanent cropping probably more trees in fields you know creating more height within the farming system if that makes sense so rather than it just being kind yeah. of a field which is cut down to soil level you know you might have agroforestry systems that are producing nuts and wood and coppice and all you know you create this sort of more three-dimensional below the soil above the soil in the trees kind of system that through creating all of these different value layers and, and always including more people within these systems and more complementary businesses, 
sort of layered within within the regenerative system you you create a completely different approach to understanding what kind of the efficiency of the system is so rather than it being linear and very kind of you know spreadsheet farming and create this kind of amazing diversity of opportunity that brings kind of vibrancy and resilience and diversity but also complexity and I think that's part of the challenge that we've got is encouraging more people to think about these more complex systems but also how you evaluate more complex systems to say that's better than the other so there's a there's, there's a big sort of behavioral problem there too yeah complexity is certainly the word that comes to mind if I if I think about what the impact would be on a farmer who is focused on one crop type and one yield to mm. moving into that sort of system that you described mm. and just coming back to yield because the way that we're talking about regenerative agriculture suggests that we're focusing not solely on yield anymore we're taking a more holistic view of what we're doing but bearing in mind the growth of the population you know the the UN is projected that the world population is going to get to 8.5 billion by 2030 that's a lot of mouths to feed how are we to balance trying to shift to farming more regeneratively with the global need for food production yeah so fascinating and complex question and I think this is why we get a pretty poor policy response to this particular problem that fundamentally we produce enough food the issue is a lot of it gets wasted particularly by the consumer so there's not enough kind of value appreciation of of what's being created there's also an argument there's a lot of overconsumption. so particular within western economies we tend to get fatter (laughs) we're not being kept healthy (laughs) by our food so, you know, it's cre- you created this consumerist society around food where you eat more than you need and you waste more than you need. And so there is this kind of, I think, core moral problem that we need to face as we um, develop the human economy of the planet to say, are we, are we all going to be able to eat in this pretty profligate way? So at individual farmer level, it's 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 too complicated it's too big picture the the regenerative enthusiasts will say our food is healthier so you need less of it so it's not empty calories it's actually better for you because it's being produced from healthy ecosystems and you're kind of reconnecting to local economies you tend to sort of be looking at on-farm processing and direct-to-consumer sales so people are kind of you know re-engaging in where their food has come from and so you know, regenerative looks to solve some of those things in that way, but sort of scaling it to kind of planetary level is, is where the, the challenge of the multinationals and, and their kind of thinking around these global shifts to say, how can we ensure that all farms are regenerative and how can we kind of, you know, create some really sort of simple corporate disclosure pieces of information that say, yeah, this is a good farm or a better farming system than what this was there before to standardize it because if you introduce all of this complexity into supply chains it it just translates into cost and so that's the dilemma that's really going on now you know the absolute advocates the organic advocates you know at at that other end would say the entire food economy is broken and just needs rebuilding but you know if you accept that we are where we are you know how are we then building in these new elements of soil health 
carbon emissions, biodiversity, impact on water, animal welfare and kind of social value into simple pieces of information that can be translated through a supply chain. And you mentioned the, the word organic, which brings me on to a, a question I, I certainly had when I started hearing the word regenerative. What is the role of organic farming in all of this? What, you know, where does organic sit versus regenerative? What are the similarities and differences in, in approach? Sure. So it's, it's an interesting one, again, because organic kind of set itself, set itself up to be like kind of against conventional farming so it was it was a real kind of rejection of agrochemicals rejection of artificial inputs whilst at the same time being very pro a lot of the things that the regenerative movement is supportive of so you know the the fact that one of the original organic pioneers called itself the soil association you know really says what it was about it was about soil you know sort of organic became a kind of almost like a brand like a stamp of authority that says this is what we believe in as a kind of a counterpoint to you know industrial type farming and it's sort of you know you can campaign on various levels against industrial style farming but the organic system itself is also quite prescriptive so it requires a lot of attention to detail it requires a big commitment to organic philosophy it requires an ability to kind of tolerate a high risk level because if you're not allowed to use any inputs at all, any artificial inputs, you have to accept that you might just get pests or diseases. Even however hard you work to eliminate the risk of it, things happen and you have to kind of have the ability the loss. And that is why organic is this big price premium because there's a lot more risk in production and a group of consumers who really believe in it but because it's so expensive comparatively speaking to conventionally produced food there's also a, a sort of a limited pool of consumers who are willing or able to make that sacrifice for a different farming system now the cleverness of regenerative in comparison is that it's not prescriptive it's got some loose principles but it takes any kind of farming and says how can you do this better judging yourself against these kind of metrics soil health carbon emissions animal welfare etc etc and and sort of do better so work out where you are do better and then sort of proliferate this sort of better thinking rather than it being kind of a heavily codified system of production where there's a lot of audit cost and a lot more risk involved in producing to an organic standard so is it is it fair to say then the way that you're describing it it almost sounds to me as if there are things about organic that we could say are regenerative you know if something is organic we could say in such it's in some respects it's it has been farmed in a regenerative way because of the attention to soil yep but then also that from what you're saying regenerative almost takes on a more continuous improvement approach that it isn't just a here's a principle and a rule that you must abide by forever but rather that you are to look at where you are to make that improvement but then to continue that improvement in the longer term 
Yeah, it's an interesting observation because we, um, whereas organic farming has been around for a really long time, so we, we're just on the cusp of kind of mainstreaming regenerative. And so, the, the, you know, we, we talk about it in the context of a transition yeah. and a regenerative transition. But your your point is a really interesting point. You know, can you keep can you keep regenerating? You know, or is that is is that oxymoronic? Yes. So, and I, I I personally think it is oxymoronic. I think once you have regenerated, then you the, then you are something else. And I think that is where a lot of the conflict around regenerative within agriculture comes from, because farmers are conscious that kind of being bottom of the food chain they don't get paid fairly for what they produce and that in meeting these kind of higher environmental expectations they may be penalized in the marketplace you know so so basically you know pick a supermarket says to its direct suppliers you know you you need to be regenerative and here are some guidelines and what we mean by that in order to supply to us and no we're not going to pay you anymore and we're not going to take on any additional risk or or help you transition so the transition is the fact that over kind of five years of kind of getting the farming system to move away from chemical inputs and to kind of relying on biological processes you need effectively five to seven years for those biological processes to re-establish themselves to an extent where you can depend upon them. And so there is a there is a cost in transitioning, and there's a lot of people who are trying to work out how you finance that transition. So government money is very much focused on financing the transition. And through the new um, within England, the new sustainable farming incentive will give you grant money for lots of different practices that, that are kind of consistent with rege- regenerative agriculture. Equally, there are, are, are private funds available, you know, from water companies or, you know, different kind of businesses who are interested in the environmental impact of, of land management. And there are also new things to like a body I'm involved with called Soil Association Exchange, who are really helping farmers to kind of work out what it is that supply chains are going to be asking them to disclose, what information they're going to need to be giving over. But in return, making sure that farmers are financially able to maximise that transition through carbon payments or through grant finance or whatever it might be. So protecting the financial integrity of those businesses whilst kind of everybody ups their game. The controversy of that is that farmers who don't engage in finding out where the new sources of income might be, might find that they're just expected to disclose the information and and aren't helped with the transition. So it's really, I think, kind of incumbent on farmers to ask for help now because it really feels like the regenerative transition writing is on the proverbial wall here. That, you know, we've got a limited window where all of this information driven food producing economy is going to be standard practice. So working out how you get paid to facilitate the transition is really important. So in terms of what that might mean for, you know, at a single farm level, if you need to change your practices, could it be that you are, I mean, how long might it take to to make the change? 
to be classed as regenerative? So bearing in mind that there's no definition of regenerative, this is really about kind of information that you're disclosing on a yearly basis to do with your carbon impact or your soil health profile or your biodiversity provision. So, but everybody talks about this sort of five to seven year phase from, you know, day one, what you're doing today to being in a situation where your soil health has recovered sufficiently to be able to produce truly sustainably with a much lower level of inputs going forwards. And I suppose just to reflect earlier on this point about the difference between that and organic, regenerative is not likely to get a price premium. Uh, There are some businesses out there like Wild Farm that are sort of seeking to get a price premium, but the vast majority of regenerative practices, I think, will be mainstreamed. The second thing is that organic is prescriptive, whereas at the moment regenerative is not prescriptive. So it's entirely up to the farmer to to choose what regenerative looks like for their business. So it can be this kind of super complex, super diverse system, or it can just be better soil health. And so every farmer can do that and every farmer will be expected to start thinking about those things as kind of supply chains and policy push us in this new direction. Do you think that regenerative is more empowering for farmers than, say, organic? I don't. Well, OK, so this is interesting and this is entirely judgmental. I'd say goes no further, but this is a podcast recording. I think organic has prided itself on being kind of against big business. It's always been very campaigning and been super passionate from that perspective. Whereas regenerative is more inclusive, I think. And you can really tell that from the kind of events and the kind of networks that are appearing around the regenerative movement. I've mentioned Groundswell already, but like just, you know, normal farming conferences wouldn't close with a DJ set. You know, it's this kind of festival (laughs) atmosphere that, you know, farmers coming together, sharing knowledge, empowering each other to do better you know it's it's really got a different atmosphere and a buzz about it and I sort of come back to the very one of the very first points I made about it being really interesting for new entrants new entrants want to come in and take part in this whereas new entrants haven't really wanted to come in and take part in this kind of very chemical heavy uh, machinery heavy kind of conventional farming system you know we have at times struggled to recruit people into that but yeah regenerative is this amazing vibe about it that people are really joyful about so as much as I kind of see all of these external pressures and it's about disclosure and information and kind of you know all of that it's also about bringing the joy back to the land and I think for that reason it's such a zeitgeist thing because it's not being enforced on farmers farmers who who, who have not yet sort of started the regenerative transition can sort of see these other farmers having a really good time and having a party and bringing the joy back and think, yeah, I want to be part of that, you know, regardless of whether their supermarket or bank or whoever it is is telling them that they need to start disclosing carbon emissions and improve their soil health, you know. So it's this weird kind of push and pull thing that it's making it super interesting. But that's amazing. If, if regenerative is prompting new entrants into farming given all of the struggles that farmers have faced over recent years and just how difficult it is you know being a farmer 
I, I, I just imagine is a really, really hard job. It's a really hard job. And often, as you mentioned, you are receiving, you know, a minimal financial reward for that production in comparison to other parts of the value chain. And if there is an incentive for people to to join and for new farmers to come, then that's really amazing. Thinking about the transition for existing farmers at a single farm level, you know, what might be the really big barriers for them? There are likely to be a few. Knowledge is is a key one. So, you know, what can you do with your farming system? What machinery are you going to need? How long is it going to take? What's the costs and the risks involved in changing your your farming practice as it as it stands at the moment? And finding support to help you through that is really important. Organisations like Soil Association Exchange can help, but there are other consultancies out there, other sources of advice, network, YouTube, books. There's some amazing books that are like the go-to Bibles from a knowledge perspective. Finance is going to be another one, working out how you can fund this sort of dip in yield that happens when you stop putting so many artificial inputs into the system and, and start letting nature do the heavy lifting so working out where those sources of finance are again you know government grants private money carbon markets there are lots of different routes that farmers can go down if that's too complex you know find somebody to help you find somebody to talk with again organization like soil association exchange sorry plugging uh, but you know they're great for that source of advice sometimes though the biggest barriers are human and one of the key challenges within agriculture is that it's nearly always a multi-generational system. Yeah. So, you know, land is passed on from one generation to the next. It's sort of like the entire tax scheme works to encourage that. <laughs> so when conversations are happening about what the future is going to look like, there will tend to be at least two generations present within that conversation. That can be a real barrier because older generations have spent the last 50 years under the common agricultural policy, under this kind of you know supermarket dynamic, under this sort of extractive consumerist agrochemical consistent, simple, it looks clean, it looks good, there are no diseases in it, you know. So this they've got it can be very easy for them to have a very fixed mentality of what good looks like. And having that conversation with the older generation to say yeah but regenerative is messier it's more complicated it's riskier we're gonna have more people here you know it can be really confrontational to a a sort of a set of expectations that have been pretty well ingrained and so there is always with any kind of change within farming a, a, a generational concern that policymakers and supply chains need to be aware of and so working, working with farming families, encouraging older generations to remember what farming was like in their childhood, not in their adulthood, is, I think, one of the routes to get through this. So we would have had diverse mixed farming systems with loads of people back in the 1950s. We forgot how to do that in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and noughties. And so for the sort of the 70 to 80 year olds who were sort of the senior leaders, they can remember this stuff. It happened years ago. This is old farming practice that we're just 
recovering our knowledge of and rebuilding our confidence in and they've got that knowledge too so i think there's ways that we can do this but it's important to remember that family dynamic so we've talked a lot about the impact on farmers and we've talked about the impact on the soil thinking about the impact that this change will have on the food that we eat how does I mean obviously this is a very broad question because we're talking about farming that could involve hundreds and thousands of different crop varieties and obviously it will be very different for different farmers but in general are there any kind of key themes of how regenerative will actually affect the food that we eat so the availability the quality we've talked a little bit about price already obviously yeah absolutely so there are some key points of interest i think one obvious one is the reintroduction of grazing livestock into arable systems so most arable systems years ago would have had sheep or cattle as part of those systems as as we were pushed financial pressures, simplified systems and and focused just on arable crops, for example. So that shift to back to include ruminants within arable systems is really interesting because red meat in particular is so demonised within a, a climate context. So understanding how good red meat, regenerative red meat, can have a really, really positive impact on biodiversity and climate is part of the overall conversation that's happening here that is is really important. So, you know, livestock are integral to regenerative agriculture. The second is that this sort of, you know, the, the, the very kind of the most extreme form of industrial arable farming would be crop of wheat followed by a crop of oilseed rape, followed by a crop of wheat, followed by a crop of oilseed rape. So it's so concentrated and you're just producing two crops. The wheat would be hopefully for making bread or biscuits. The oilseed rape would be crushed to produce um, vegetable oil, which is used obviously in, in tons of cooking. So kind of spreading out from that, you want to introduce a great deal more variety to that, but in specifically crops that fix nitrogen within the soil. And they tend to be quite interesting crops like pulses and beans and lots of things that we can grow in this country, but currently export. So we we do grow food grade beans in this country, but they tend to be exported to North Africa, for example. So one of the key kind of asks and opportunities is if we're growing more pulses and beans in this country, where are we going to be consuming those and how can we make sure that they are included as part of a more diverse less processed diet so less white bread more lentil dal kind of lunch you know yeah where are we thinking about that and, and it's easier to think about that disrupting catering supply chains than it is perhaps to think about it disrupting consumer supply chains oh, sorry consumer by which i mean retail supply chains but that you know if we need to be growing more of these leg- leguminous crops where where have we got the market offtake for those it it goes hand in hand actually when when you're talking about that need for for diversity of crops 
it makes me think about you know what people like Tim Spector are talking about and asking people to to think about consuming 30 to 40 different plants a week to improve their gut health and through that their overall health yep and also in terms of from a public health perspective how we all need to consume more fiber yep you know the two things go really hand in hand you know they can both be beneficial for public health and from a, an agricultural point of view in terms of what needs to be achieved so it, it doesn't feel like what we need people to eat in order to be more healthy and what we need people to eat in order for the farming system to be healthier are fighting they they need to go in the same direction and they're complementary however obviously there's there are lots of other barriers which we can't delve into all of those today but there are lots of other barriers that are going to get in the way of that of that succeeding but that makes me smile because there is a there is a complementary nature of direction of travel for those two things enormous absolutely enormous and so it just begs the question why why are we not moving in that direction yeah why are people getting unhealthier through the food that they consume and I would argue one of the reasons for that is that if we think about these environmental disclosures as being a form of kind of ESG accounting, and most people would know what ESG accounting, environmental, social and governance, you know, so that's sort of positive impact and, and it's all part of these disclosures and this kind of shift. But there's no H in ESG. There's no health in environmental, social and governance. So if you're looking at the investability and the overall goodness of a business, you don't consider its impact on the health of society or people or environments or, you know, so if, if we had a specific measure for food businesses that say, are you making people ill or are you making people healthy? And um, what kind of shift in corporate behaviour would we have? I can imagine there being enormous pushback from an awful lot of businesses that would say it's entirely up to consumers to decide how much bad food they eat. I'm using virtual bunny ears on a podcast um, <laughs> bad food that they eat or good food that they eat but you know we just can't afford the cost of ill health you know when you look at all of the problems that our NHS is facing and Henry Dimbleby laid it out so clearly for government about the cost of ill health to the economy through lost work days and to the NHS directly in terms of illness and like what what's it gonna take <laughs> to kind of yeah. get policymakers to go, this is not being nanny state, this is genuinely making positive interventions within this system, minor interventions that say we will increase the amount of fiber in every product that's sold in a retailer. You know, we will mandate for certain minimal levels of healthfulness within products, whatever it might be. I mean, you know, I'm fortunate enough to not be a policymaker I could just you know it's a tough, it's a tough <laughs> job but it does make you think doesn't it Rachel like what what yeah. will it take I think do you know what I feel like this is a whole other podcast oh, I feel yeah. like I feel like yeah I, I could talk to you about this for for a really long time because yeah these things you know they do all go hand in hand absolutely and so maybe um, actually thinking about it there's going to be this kind of like regenerative health transition by stealth because if all kind of 
having to go down this regenerative transition and we know healthier mm. soil makes healthier food so all of our food is kind of like just i don't know two percent healthier in how it's been grown or 20 percent healthier whatever percentage it might be and that's what consumers are eating then maybe we'll have achieved it so you know yeah. getting on board with regenerative transition seems to be a really obvious way to start and I think, you know, for people like uh, myself and some of the people who listen to this podcast, people who are buying, developing products, you know, it, it prompts us to think about when we're formulating those recipes of, say, you know, a ready meal or a salad or a few to go product, for example, anything, are we thinking about what's going into it and 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 how we can promote that that higher level of diversity of ingredients that mm. can actually add a lot of value mm. to it can add cost but it can add lots of value nutritional value but also you know interest and value for the consumer and you know I have to say the more I learn about this the more it makes me reflect on how disconnected I've been you know in earlier stages of my career to the food that's grown that goes into my products mm. and I think that Unless you're working with, you know, if you're a produce buyer or an, or an agronomist or a technologist for a retailer, you're you're pretty connected, you know, to what to to where your food is, is grown, the food that you're selling is grown. But you're that one step removed if you're dealing with convenience foods, processed ingredients, and sometimes you can be sat in your multi-story office building, you know, in a city, and and you ha- you just are inherently disconnected and. Living more rurally has definitely made me more aware, but this conversation and the things that I'm listening to and, and reading about are really making me reflect on, you know, the questions that I'm asking about the ingredients in the products that, you know, I want to create. And for people listening who might be in similar roles in the industry, bearing in mind the lack of accreditation and and regulation and the nature of regenerative agriculture as a system it feels like you know we need to be better informed and we need to think about the right questions to ask what what should we be asking about those ingredients if people start to start to talk to us about regenerative how do we know it's genuine? How do we know it's not just a badge? Well, okay, so the cynical answer is there is no badge. So it's not like um, I was even seeing even yesterday, you know, the, the cost of organic fraud. You know, if you say you've been producing to a certain system and haven't and but can sell it at a much higher price premium, there's sort of a risk of fraud there. But because regenerative probably won't have that price premium, A, there should be less incentive for for fraud. But I think you made an interesting point there about kind of, you know, the the, the fact that sort of the corporate buyer has only really had to be concerned about sort of traceability from one up, one down traceability. So who have I bought it from? And it's probably, you know, an interim processor of some description and it will come with certain assurances. And, you know, what's the price and what's the spec? So now having to go, which farm did this come from and what system were they producing to? And I think the question to ask there is, is where are we getting industry coalescence around what this means? And, and again, I, I mentioned Soil Association Exchange as kind of one system of benchmarking that kind of 
sort of helps supply chains understand sort of with simple metrics what those farms are doing but the challenge of needing to do that full um, source to supply you know you know consumption the source to consumption traceability even for complex processed supply chains is that they're just sort of they're disaggregated so you know the the, the buyer won't know which particular farm the grain in the site has all been mixed up and also uh, it might change from year to year so the farm or the fields it will be a different field or farm from year to year because these are rotational crops a lot of the time and so understanding that that complexity means that the farm has to take responsibility for its own regenerative transition this is not about the supply chain going okay we need we've identified that you are our farmer and we need you to be doing this differently because that responsibility puts the responsibility on the supply chain possibly unfairly there's there's a level of kind of responsibility they do have to take account of uh, and a level of risk and kind of understanding the, the value exchange there but there's also a bit of saying well we, we want to work with you farm week but you farmer needs to remain independent because you're producing lots of different crops a, a large diversity of products probably for more than one customer we can come to dairy supply chains and stuff where it's not the case <laughs> in, in mm. a bit but you know sort of thinking about you know most arable cropping one farm lots of different customers the products of the farm mixed and and, and spread so it really has to be a question of working with the farm, not working with the product um, to be able to say, OK, farmer, how, how are you kind of creating this from your system? What's the overall value of your system, not the value of your product? And, and where are the systems evolving to help these supply chains understand that complexity? And that's why things like soil association exchange are so good because they give the farmer agency in all of this transition, they help the farmer, but then you've got these standardised environmental disclosures that sit above that, so the supply chain can say, well, we want to pay farmers to do something differently, we want to, we want to fund this regenerative transition, so we can say, we can claim what we have done in a, in a, in a, in a sort of a legal sense, and, you know, avoid greenwashing, or we want to buy... 100,000 carbon offsets, for example, and we want to make sure we've paid for them and that those outcomes have happened. So you sort of need to look for these sort of in, you know, the exchanges that have integrity, basically, to, to be able to working in their space. And so it's it's just get, get, get your awareness up there of, of what you're being tasked and expected to do. But don't panic because this is not purely your responsibility. This is all happening if you you know you, you've got a role to play absolutely and you can make a massive difference and and need to make a massive difference within that food sector space but find the places where you can work with farmers so that you are everyone is sharing the burden of this transition rather than it falling solely on farmers or solely on individual supply chains you've got to move from this linear thinking to collaborative circular thinking and that's going to be part of the challenge in this space yeah and I think that that collaborative thinking and action seems absolutely imperative and just listening to another podcast last week about this talking about the sustainable markets initiative and the agribusiness task force that seems to come across in terms of lots of different stakeholders from different parts of the industry being call to action yeah and, and even basis and even at, at sort of sorry 
what 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 guy what's what's the kind of that invisible hand of the market that's going on here and it will be things like competition policy that corporates particularly in concentrated sectors like retail will be super worried about but the company have now come out with very clear guidance on what sort of pre-competitive collaboration looks like in the climate and sustainability space so to enable like all of the retailers to come together and to say this is what we mean when we say we want environmental outcome x or this is what sustainability means and previously if that impacted on the cost of consumer then it would have been you know a, a, a massive infringement of, of competition law but because of this need to drive change and the need to collaborate in this space the competition and the markets authority have, have acknowledged that there's this need for collaboration and are and are willing like open door policy come and speak to us about how you can do this not be fearful that you're going to get penalised for anti-competitive behaviour. So I think this general kind of cultural shift in how corporates need to behave in driving better standards of behaviour is really new thinking and will take a lot of kind of um, embedded professionals off guard, you know, from being super protective and sort of seeking competitive advantage to saying, OK, how do we how do we all tackle plastic pollution? How do we all move? to eliminate plastics from supply chains so the no one early mover like you know Sainsbury's got dragged over it didn't they for kind of putting meat into sort of smaller plastic containers in order to eliminate plastic waste and consumers say they hated it well look all supply chain all supermarkets do it at the same time because we all know it needs to happen and then the consumer behavior is addressed right so I think just moving into this collaborative continuous improvement driving better behaviors space is so important for corporates to embrace it's been incredibly interesting to talk to you about this and i've i've learned so much even just from our our few short conversations and it's really given me a hunger to want to learn more what is your biggest hope for regenerative farming my biggest hope for regenerative farming is that farmers find joy in farming again. We've lost so many people from the industry because of this sort of drive towards efficiency and bigger machinery over bigger hectares. It has become a really lonely profession and the mental health of farmers has suffered enormously as a result of long hours and lone working. So in all of this, I would I would love to think that the appalling statistics in the industry around suicide and around injury and around mental health are all fundamentally addressed by making it a more people's, more enjoyable, better resourced, more diverse and um, nicer industry to work in. And that would be my my I would be so happy if that was the unintended beneficial consequence of of everything that's going on here. What is your greatest concern? My greatest concern is that farmers don't embrace the financial opportunity that this brings and simply see the the the, the financial challenge of the transition as as a as a barrier as a as a as a total barrier to taking part as opposed to 
an opportunity to engage in new sources of funding. So if they if they see if they see the five year transition as a nope, not doing it, can't afford to do it, then that will be a shame because there's so much support and so many opportunities to engage in different ways of thinking that 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 will be I think probably on those individual farmers to to, to just because that's fine if, if, if that's what they choose but I, I think that there, there was so much support out there that they, there are limited excuses for, for not engaging. Thank you so much Emily you've been absolutely amazing and you've talked about this subject with such knowledge and such passion it's been brilliant to get your perspective on things and yeah I imagine we might continue this in the future because it's such a big such a big topic I think there'll be lots of questions that come from this so I just want to say thank you so so much for giving me your time and your energy to to talk about this I really really appreciate it thank you you are so welcome Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fascinating Foodies podcast. I hope you found it really interesting. I'd like to say a big thank you to Emily Norton for all of the insights that she shared on the subject and also to Claire Ottridge from the Women in Food and Farming Network who connected me with Emily. Thanks ever so much.